I burned out immensely. Classic signs of burnout, right? So overeating, overdrinking, not sleeping enough. You know, I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good friend. I wasn't a good son during that, that time. I had my very first panic attack. I was hallucinating. I was screaming. I was down on all fours, gripping the ground, yelling. Like, it was a pretty bad day. And my wife called 911. The, you know, the ambulance came. All the paramedics hooked me up. That day was the day that I knew I needed to do something different. It wasn't be a creator or start a one-person business. It was just do something different. Before we get into the episode, if you really enjoy this podcast and you want to be the first to see when we drop an episode, please subscribe to the channel. It helps us immeasurably. Road to 100K. I wanted to read your pinned tweet because I think it kind of sums up where you're at. So here's how it goes. Today, my little one-person business crossed $5 million in revenue. That was my goal when I started on August 1st of 2019. It took 1,548 days. I ran zero ads and I operate at a 92% margin. Okay, here's where I want to start because I think to a lot of people listening, that sounds like an absolute dream, the one person mm. business. And before we kind of get into the how-to and how you've been able to do it and what these last 1,500 days or so have been like, I wanted to start with the context. What was happening in your life August 1st, 2019, around this time where you were like, I want to start a one person business. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I, I don't, I don't know that I approached it thinking that I would start a one person business. That wasn't, that wasn't how I thought this world was going to work for me being a creator. In fact, I didn't have intentions of being a creator for more than six months. In fact, being a creator wasn't really even what I wanted to do, but to give you some context, uh, I spent 10 years in high growth startups. So uh, I was here in Manhattan, uh, early sub 10 employee at a company called ZocDoc in 2009, spent five years there. Extremely difficult place to work. Everyone got fired all the time. Like people were leaving constantly. It was high pressure, high growth. I lasted for five years and, and worked my way up the rank by working really hard and really long hours, moving across the country four times. Uh, after five years there, I became the VP of sales and the chief revenue officer at a company called Patient Pop in Santa Monica, California, and spent five years growing that team from its very first person up to 150 people on the sales and marketing team, its first dollar in revenue to 70 million. And it was an awesome experience. The problem was that after doing that for 10 consecutive years at two companies, I burned out immensely. Um, classic signs of burnout, right? So overeating, over drinking, not sleeping enough. Uh, you know, I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good friend. I wasn't a good son during that, that time. And on December, I think it was 16th of 2018, uh, I had my very first panic attack. I've since had a second one. And I don't know if you've ever had one, but it's, it's a pretty wild experience where you kind of feel like you're dying. Like I was hallucinating. I was screaming. I was down on all fours, gripping the ground, yelling. Like it was a pretty bad day. And my wife called 911, the, you know, the ambulance came, all the paramedics hooked me up, told me I was fine. It took me maybe six to eight hours to kind of work my way out of that. That day was the day that I, need, I knew I needed to do something different. It wasn't be a creator or start a one-person business. It was just do something different. Um, so it, I put in my, my notice. It took me another, I think, seven months to leave the role. I was running a team of 150 people. Um, and I decided that I was going to try to work for myself. But I figured I would just do it for six months and then go get another job being a VP of sales or a chief revenue officer. But that's what kickstarted this whole movement for me. Mm. You know what? It's, um, it's interesting how it goes in life where I feel like 
during the course of our life, we have like these wake up calls. We have these moments where something happens where it's like, okay, that's an inflection point. It's yeah. a turning point. Something needs to be different after this. I'm curious, like that day when you had the first panic attack, what was, what was even happening in the lead up? Like were all the signals clear or was it like everything was normal? You're just living life as you yeah. normally would. And then all of a sudden this just happens. No, no, it was totally clear, especially looking back now. What is that? Uh, five, six years ago, right? Five years ago, I guess. So it started by how I coped with the growth of patient pop as a startup. Uh, I was a 32 year old VP of sales, um, given their first shot. I thought I was going to get the company to like a million in ARR or 3 million. And then they would go find a guy or gal who had done this for 10 or 15 years and, you know, gray hair, been there and come in and like take over. And I would kind of be relegated. That didn't happen. And that's great for my career. Like growing that way is excellent. But once we hit like five and then 10 and then 20, suddenly the company changes, the team changes, the growth changes. And a lot of people are, are very specific to their stage. They'll work at, you know, $1 million startup. So they get it to five or they'll get it to 20 or they're good from 20 to 50. One to 70, the company looks so different across so many different phases. And the reason I'm telling you this is because what happened was I didn't overwork myself, although I, I did, but that wasn't the leading cause of burnout. It was loss of control. Suddenly the problem started stacking. Like, and if you can't solve them fast enough, they stack one on top of another, on top of another. Everything becomes urgent. Everything becomes a priority, important and urgent. That quadrant was everything. And as that starts to happen, you start to break down. And the way that I coped with that, as I kind of mentioned before, was like classic ways of coping, right? Go home, drink a bottle of wine, eat a hamburger, eat fries, sleep for four hours, uh, not take care of myself physically. Like you can see it in 2018. I was 240 pounds, um, you know, I'm like 210 right now. So it's 30 pounds heavier. Um, and just treating myself poorly. And it was, it's like hard to look back and see, to be quite honest. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm hugely into sports at, at the minute. I'm watching a lot of like NFL football, right? An incredibly physical sport. The reason that I say that I think when you're reaching like physical burnout or physical exhaustion, the signs are easier to spot, mm -hmm. right? You feel the pain in your muscles. You feel the soreness. What's actually far more dangerous and far more difficult to track is the mental fatigue because it's not, it's not as apparent. And a lot of the times you can kind of get into these ways of operating the, you know, let me just have a few drinks after work. Yeah. You know, let me just, I deserve to have like a double cheeseburger yeah, totally. after this long shift. And it just gradually stacks up and stacks up and stacks up. And I feel like there's so many people that are living their life burnt out and have no idea. And I'm just curious about like, I think one of the most powerful things in life that you can do is get specific. Mm -hmm. It's like truly understand what the problem is, truly understand like, why are you doing what you're doing? I'm curious, what was that process of you? Because at this point you seem very specific with exactly where it was what was happening, what was compounding against you. But was it like that at the time? How did you get specific on that? 
Okay, so we are in upgrade season. This is about upgrading your work, upgrading your pay, all of those things. And that brings us to the sponsor of today's show, Free Agency. Free Agency represents and manages talent in the tech industry. They provide you with a dedicated talent agent that helps you find and win top of market roles. So if you're looking to build your dream career today, check out Free Agency, go to the link in the description. Thank me later. No, it wasn't. It's like, um, it's like almost anything. It's kind of like aging, right? Like if you look at yourself in the mirror every single day, you're like, oh, I, I look the same as yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. But in reality, you're aging, right? And if you look at a gap between, you know, a picture, two pictures that are 10 years apart, it becomes very apparent that you're aging, right? Um, but for me, every day felt the same. Suddenly feeling like shit became the norm, right? So you wake up, you feel like shit. You go to bed, you feel like shit. That became the norm. And it's like, you can't remember what it was like to feel good. And that's, that's, what, that's what the beginning, I think to, to, to kind of backtrack on that just a second, I think if I would have stopped and paused and said, hey, have I always felt this shitty? Have I always slept this little? Have I always eaten this much? Have I always felt this out of shape? I think candidly, I would say no, right? But I was too busy too urgent. Everything was too fast. Um, there wasn't a moment to pause and reflect. What happens with a panic attack is it causes you to pause and reflect. It happens and it's so violent. Um, and by the way, like when I, when I hear panic attack, I was like, well, what do you, you get, what do you get anxious? Do you get worried? And I was like pretty intense. And like, it causes you to react and you have to stop and be like, do I ever want that thing to happen again? And the answer for me was no. And I just took that as a sign. Um, you know, I think there were other parts of me that were ready to, to move on, but I took that as a sign. It's like now or never. And I had to be cognizant of leaving the team behind. So that's why I stayed for a longer period of time. And I had a great relationship with the CEOs and all of that stuff, but I had to make a change. And before I left the seven months leading up to, to me leaving, I lost, I think 40 or 50 pounds, maybe even more. I got super healthy. Like I approached this next chapter of my life with a more a new vigor, right? Completely reinvigorated. Mm. You know what? It's like, um, what you were saying actually reminds me of this quote, which is the universe whispers before it yells. Oh, that's, that's good. So there's a lot of things that are happening. They're like little whispers. The signals are there. And increasingly it's like, we ignore it. We ignore it. We push it aside. We push it aside. And then it's like literally yelling in your face. Yeah. And that's the, that's the panic attack, right? You know what? I think one of the things you said was so important, which is if you had just had a moment of kind of stillness, a moment of space, and I think like things would have been different. And it's so difficult, I feel like with our lives, we're so distracted. Mm -hmm. There's so much kind of demands and pulls on our time. It's so difficult to get that space. So before we actually get into kind of the one person business and, and everything that happened after. I'm curious, like, what is your advice in terms of like, if I have a job and there's all these demands on my time and I'm getting pulled into meetings and people are giving me more responsibilities and things are just escalating and escalating, but I can feel like I can feel that I need the space. How do I even go about yeah. getting that bit of room? Like, how did you get that wiggle room where you could even just step back? Yeah, I didn't. That was the problem, right? And I think if I could do it again, I would find ways to get that. And some of the ways that come to mind are, 
some things that I do now to ensure that I'm not burning out in my, in my new job, which is essentially writing is a great way for me to put how I'm feeling on pen and paper, right? So I journal every single day. I don't always write in, in a piece of, on a piece of paper. Sometimes I type it into Notion or put it on my computer or whatever, but generally I'll say like, what's going well? What's going poorly? What am I grateful for? Like, is there any indicators that things are going down the wrong path? Like just being cognizant and finding the time to be cognizant is to me a, a huge win. You do that by building a business that supports your life, right? Your life should come first. Your business should come second. If you build your life that way and you build a business that supports your life, you build in free time, you build in breaks, you build in observations, you build in opportunities to be cognizant of what's going on. That to me is like step number one. So it's building your life first and your business second. It's taking that opportunity to sit down. It doesn't have to be journaling. It could be you know, leaving a voice note on your phone. It could be whatever method or, or means that you like to record yourself or get your thoughts down, I think is really helpful. And then the third thing that I would suggest is like surrounding yourself with peers who have been there. So I was promoted into this role when I was 32, as I kind of mentioned before, as a VP. And most of my friends at that age were still uh, managing teams. They, some of them had become directors. I didn't have a lot of peers who had jumped into the VP level or the C-suite and so I didn't have a lot of friends to share like the, the, both the, the trials and the tribulations, the triumphs, all the things that were going well, but also going poorly. And um, not having that peer sort of support group uh, was pretty disastrous, I think. And, you know, my CEOs were older. They had built businesses. They trusted me a lot. And so they didn't, they didn't hold my hand, right? And I don't expect them to, um, but I was kind of operating on an island. And I, today, you know, I have a Slack group. I have Discord groups full of guys and gals that are, you know, on my team, basically. They're not literally on my team, but we're all doing the same stuff at the same time. Having that sounding board has been just hugely beneficial for me. Yeah. You know, okay. You know what? Let's, let's, let's get into the, into the one person cool. business. Let's get into the good stuff. Um, I think one of the things actually, and I'm just thinking about it is there's a shift when you go from working for a company to working for yourself. And I think a lot of the hesitation that people have is like, first off, like, what am I even going to do? And even the thing that you said about like, uh, life first and then the business second, I think intuitively it sounds and it feels so correct, but it's like, I don't even know what I'm going to do, let alone figuring out how to build breaks into this money-making operation. Like, I don't even know how I'm going to make money. So what is the step one? Like, how does someone even start out in this? Yeah, I still think step one is thinking about your life. It doesn't mean that you can construct it from day one, right? It's not like, you know what I want my life to be? I want to work four hours a day and I want to make a million bucks. Like, that's a bad plan from day one, right? But what you should be thinking about are, what are the things that you like to do and that give you joy, right? But also, what are the things that you don't want to do? Now, you can't build a life where you don't do anything you don't like to do right from the start, right? But you can try your hardest to avoid things that you dislike and build a long-term plan to gradually eliminate things that you don't like doing, right? So I think planning that way effectively, what does your, what does your best life look like every day, week, month, year, decade when you're living it? I think having that in the back of your mind, it leaps, at least helps you directionally as you go to build your business. The second thing that you have to do is just figure out what you're good at, right? And there's a pretty easy framework for figuring out what you're good at. Doesn't mean you'll arrive at the right answer right away, but it's pretty general, right? What are the skills that you've learned during your experience at work? That's, that's number one, right? Number two, what's something that you're so obsessed with 
you're so interested in, you learn about so much on a daily basis that you could talk about it and educate people about it for hours. That's number two. Right. Number three is what are what do people come to you for help for? So we all have something that people come to us for help with continuously, all the time, right? And often what they come to us for help for intersects with our previous business experience or the thing that we're obsessed with. So there might be some intersection there. And lastly is like, what's something that you've solved for yourself? I see that a lot with fitness coaches, right? So you go online and you see someone who's, I used to be 250, you know, I was in terrible shape, I was smoking and drinking, and now I'm a lean 175, six pack abs, recreated my life, recreated my journey, my nutrition, my diet, like they fixed a problem for themselves. So the fourth kind of part of that framework is what's something you fixed for yourself? It's likely if you fix something for yourself because you had a problem that other people will want to fix that same problem. They're just further behind you on the journey. So I think it's really honing in on what are those skills. And that's a good four-part framework. Doesn't mean it's what you're going to do long-term. My advice to people is always get out there and start talking about something. When I started, I talked about SMB SaaS companies in the healthcare technology space. Five years later, I talk about something wildly different. But going out and learning how to promote your business, learning how to land customers, that's all going to help you on this very, very long journey. Yeah. You know, um, I remember listening to, uh, hearing this quote from Alex Hormozzi. I thought it was so good. He said that um, when you're trying to kind of reach like a different, like that kind of next income tier, like maybe you're earning, I don't know, 5,000 a month, but you want to earn 10,000 a month. Maybe you're earning 10,000 a month. You want to earn 100,000 a month. He said the two things that are separating you from doing that, it's either skills or belief. I think everyone always thinks about skills, right? Like, oh, I need to be better at sales or I need to get better at marketing. The belief component and the, especially like the limiting beliefs is something that we don't think about as much. And it's interesting, something that you said, which is like, it's just about getting started. It's just about starting to, to talk. And I think so many people, they don't have any voice when it comes to the internet. They don't, they, they consume content, but they never produce it. They never put it out there. Can you kind of, what was kind of even your journey with that? Where like you developed a confidence in like, okay, here's where I'm going to show up. Here's how I'm going to show up, like even deciding which platforms you're going to go to and all of these things. Quick break. Something that I say on this podcast again and again and again, the thing that's holding you back from reaching where you want to be is one of two things. Typically, it's either belief or skills. And the skills part, let me bring in the sponsor of today's show, which is Skillshare. Skillshare, it's in the name they have courses, over 25,000 courses on the platform. Some of the best creators, entrepreneurs, experts, educators, teaching you skills that will meaningfully grow you and your business. Whether it's photography, web design, video. I did a Skillshare course by Ali Abdal on productivity. So many things on Skillshare. It's really going to take you to a whole new level. And that's not it. I've hooked you up. Use the link in the description below you'll get a seven day free trial to use Skillshare. Thank me later. I, it wasn't confidence, right? Like I would love to say I was like super confident. I was like yeah. so confident when I started. I wasn't, I was, I, I had, I'm still not that confident. Like to be, to be quite frank, um, it wasn't confidence. It was, I had no choice, right? I was going to quit my job and could I have taken a six month break? Yes. Right. 
But my goal was to see if I can make this thing work. I assumed it would not work because I had never made a dollar online. And I was like, how do I make money? I got to make money online. Um, but I decided, okay, I have to get started with something. And what most people do is they buy 10 books on how to create social media. Or they read 100 blogs. Or they join a community. Or they buy a course. Or they do whatever. And they watch and watch and watch and read and read and read. And they never start. Because it feels like they're starting. Because they're learning. They're, they're getting educated. And it feels good. It checks a box. But they're not, they're not really doing anything action-oriented. So I bought one book. I read it. And I went on to, of all places, LinkedIn. Why I chose LinkedIn was because I was afraid of Twitter. I knew it was mean. I knew that people, you get canceled. I, I, I used it for news. I didn't even consider going to use it for content creation. I went to LinkedIn. It was safe. It was professional. And like nobody was treating it like Twitter. I was like, oh, there might be an opportunity here. Read a book, logged on to LinkedIn, was like, what am I going to share? Well, I just built a startup from its first dollar in revenue to 70 million in recurring. Right? There's a lot of lessons in there. So I just started writing about that. Here's how I built, built an SDR team. Here's what I think about when it comes to inbound marketing. Here's how I work together with the VP of marketing. Here is how we set up customer success in the early days. There were a million lessons that I had learned. You just have to start. If you don't start, you'll never learn. Start, then learn. Sahil Lavinia says that from Gumroad. I love that. It's start, then learn. Don't learn, then start. Just get started and watch how the journey unfolds. Five years later, I have nothing to do with healthcare technology, nothing to do with SaaS companies. I've pivoted three or four times, and it's been a lot of fun figuring out what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I think, I think that that belief of just get started is so important. And, you know, this is, this is what I did and I've seen other people do, which is I think we live in a world because we're so aware of what everyone else is doing. We try and perfect every single move. So before even doing anything, I'm going to watch 10 YouTube videos about the difference between doing TikTok versus Instagram reels versus YouTube shorts versus LinkedIn versus Twitter. I'm going to try and perfectly plan out my first move where it's like, you're just wasting time. Like you're just wasting time. You just need to get started and start with what's easy. I think that's the thing. It's like LinkedIn was just the easiest thing for you to get started with. Least amount of friction, yeah. right? Like people always ask me, what platform should I choose? What do you like? Like pick the one that you like because in the, in the beginning and really throughout the journey, consistency and persistence are the two most important traits. Like doing it daily is important. So if you don't like to write, but you like to record podcasts, record podcasts because you're more likely to do it every day. If you like writing, write every day. If you like being on Twitter, use Twitter, right? Of course there are different platforms that are better for certain customers. Like, all of that stuff is true, right? You have to be strategic, but if you try and be perfect, you will never get started. I talk to people all the time that say, you know, I, the last two years, I've been trying to decide between these three things I really like doing. What a waste of two years. Like pick one and get started. If six months later you hate doing it, great. You've eliminated 33% of the problem. You got 66% left. Move on to the next one, get started there until you find something you like doing. Like waiting around is never going to be the right strategy. Mm. You know what? I, um, this is actually how I think about things now is like, because I, I know Naval says this thing where like, you want to do, uh, you want to focus on things that feel like play to you, but work to others. And one of the things is like, I think is difficult is the things that feel like play to us. It comes so naturally. You're not aware of it. Like you don't even, you think everyone loves it. Like, oh, doesn't everyone love football? <laughs> You're like, everyone loves this. It's not just my thing. And so 
I think it's like, what are you already doing? You already spend like five hours a day on YouTube. You spend ton of hours on Twitter. Like that's your place. Like, why are you going to go to TikTok? You already spend time on, on these platforms. And that is, feels more intuitive. Like, what are you already spending your time doing? To- totally. And I, I also think when he wrote that, I think he's misinterpreted. Maybe he's not, right? I, I can't speak for him. But the way that I think about work feeling like play is not that my work is going to be fun every day. And that it's like, uh, you know, football players generally enjoy playing football. I, I would bet that practice every day isn't fun. I would bet that there are aspects of the game that, is, that isn't fun, right? Or aren't fun. Um, for me, it's, it's about what's interesting. So figuring out how to build this one person business to certain revenue milestones, to help a certain number of people, to unlock certain things that I never thought I'd be able to do with my life, that's interesting. And often it's fun, but it's not always fun. So in the beginning, pick something interesting. You'll do a lot of fun shit. You'll do a lot of stuff that's not fun. But if it's interesting, you're more likely to continue to do it, to stay consistent, to show up every day. What I can't stand is when I see people pick things that they're not interested in, because then it's never fun. So you might as well find the thing you're most interested in and get started. Yeah. You know what it is? I I think it's like, you just want to get the foundation right. Totally. And when you pick the thing that you're not interested in, it doesn't matter how far you take it. The foundation is off from the beginning. Like everything else becomes more difficult. Staying consistent, which is what everyone tells you in content, right? Mm -hmm. Becomes nearly impossible to do that when you just don't enjoy the thing. You know, I wanted to give, um, I wanted to give some pushback because I can already, I can already hear people saying this, which is like when you started and you were thinking about like, okay, what am I going to write about? The thought process was like, well, I've already built this business from zero to 70 million. Mm -hmm. Like I was chief revenue officer at this startup and Mm -hmm. I did this thing. and so. I have a high degree of confidence that I can speak to this. And here's what people are going to say. They're going to say, well, I haven't built a business to 17 million. Sure. Like, I don't have that thing, which like, if you look at my resume, if someone was just looking at my life, they could look at it and just be like, oh, okay, that's like spectacular. Like, that's something that he can instantly speak to. What do you say to that person that's like, I don't have that thing. Like, I don't have that level of expertise. Yeah. Develop it, right? The easiest way to become an interesting creator or to build an interesting online business is to do interesting things in real life, right? That's how you get started. If you have no skills, which by the way, I think almost everyone has skills, right? If you have no skills and no experience and no business experience at all, it's going to be hard, right? I also think as you look around at the different creators making moves, making headway, they don't all have my background, right? So it's easy to kind of glob onto my background and say, he did it, but, right? But for every, every me, there's lots of people who are 24, who don't have a whole lot of life or business experience going out and monetizing their passions. But the first thing that you have to do is you have to become good at something. The easiest way to teach other people how to become good at something is to become good at it yourself. So whatever that thing is, right, whether it's something that is common in the workplace, so marketing, building landing pages, doing SEO, those are classic examples that I can think of off the top of my head, or whether it's something that you have a hobby in, photography, exercise, you have to be good at it, right? That that is part of the game. And I think what people are saying when they say, yeah, but, is they're saying, I don't want to do that. 
And so I would push back on those folks and say, if you want to build an online business, it pays to be good at something, right? Mm. So go out and become the best at something specific and then show everyone how you did it. Mm. Okay, I love it. I love it. Okay, so let's um, let's fast forward it. So I have my thing that I have the degree of certainty. I have the degree of confidence. Like, okay, I'm good at this. Yeah, I'm starting to talk about it online. I'm starting to publish my thoughts, <clears throat> which is kind of step two to it. Where does the first dollar come from? Like, yeah. where, where, where does that happen? Yeah, I think the easiest way to kind of make your first dollar is tied to how I think you should get started creating content. And by the way, just because I say, I think this is how you should get started does not mean it's the right answer for everyone. I'm sure there are people who have done it multitude of different ways, right? But if I were to advise someone who has never created content and wants to make a dollar online or $100 or $1,000, first thing that I would do is teach. So don't try and be contrarian. Don't try and be super humorous. Don't try and be like, are there people who do that and do it well? Of course. But the majority of people, if you want to be successful, go online and start teaching. Share what you've learned. Share the journey. Share the lessons, the mistakes, the wins, the losses, right? Once you've done that, a small audience should gather if you're doing it effectively. If they don't, maybe you're a bad writer. Maybe you're a bad podcaster. Maybe you're a bad video creator. Get better at the thing you're doing, at the medium you're using to spread your message, right? Don't just say this doesn't work. Look internally and say what's going poorly, right? So once you get the medium right, once you get the message right, once you get a small audience going around, the easiest way to figure out how to make a dollar is to figure out what specific challenges people have in your audience group. And there's no better way, and it's hard, right? No better way than to talk to them, right? When you, when you write a piece of content and you explain step-by-step step how to do something you've learned, if you have even a small following, you might get two or three questions. Hey, Jim, I'm just trying to get some clarity around what you meant on this. Awesome. Can I just jump on a quick Zoom call with you, 10 minutes? Want to make sure I understand exactly what you're asking, why you're asking it, so I can give you the best advice possible. All of those questions, all of those clarifying questions are, are openings to learn about people's specific challenges. And if you can learn about common challenges that lots of people have that they can't figure out how to solve, that's a very easy way to make a dollar, right? And if you're going down that journey, if it's in your skill wheelhouse, if it's in your area of expertise, all you got to do is go study exactly how to solve that specific challenge. More than likely, you've probably already solved it. That's the, that's the good news, right? Then it becomes saying, great, uh, you have that problem, right? What have you tried? How did it work? What's it costing you? What does that mean to you personally? How big of a priority is this? Why so big? What date do you want to solve it by? How long do you think it'll take to solve? Great. Sounds like you want to solve it in the next 60 days. We think it's going to take anywhere between 45 to 50 days to solve. That means in the next 10 to 15 days, you need to make a decision on whether you want to solve this. I can solve it for you. Sounds like it's costing you $30,000 a year. I can solve that for four grand over 40 hours, right? I'm just making an example up. If you can put together a solution where you cost less than the cost it takes them to actually keep that problem around, then you have a business, right? If, if I say I can solve a $30,000 problem for $4,000, that's a business. And the problem that, the, the reason that people don't do that, I think, is it's uncomfortable to talk to, talk to customers. It's hard to do discovery. I have 15 years of sales experience, so I know how to do that kind of with one eye, one eye closed at this point in my life, but it's part of the game. It's part of the skill set that you need to generate if you want to go out and build revenue for yourself.
Yeah. You know what I think is, um, I, I, I just love the way of thinking, which is like, we've done about 80 episodes of this podcast mm -hmm. so far, spoken with a ton of really successful entrepreneurs. And you start to see these patterns with how they approach building companies, which is the first thing they're trying to do. It's almost like they're looking for signal. Mm -hmm. They're trying to find like, what's the problem that people have? Like, what's the unique problem that people have that I can uniquely solve? And so when you go on social media and you're posting, and I thought what you said was interesting, which is like basically the classic thing that Gary Vee says, which is almost like document, don't create. Yep. A lot of people, they say, oh, I'm not creator. I don't, I don't see myself as a creator. It's like, okay, then don't create, just document <laughs> yeah. what you're doing. And when you do that, it starts to send out a signal. People that are experiencing or a few steps uh, before you, they can start to kind of be drawn towards you and start to give you that signal and start to show their problems. And then from there, it's like, okay, the only thing a business really does is it just solves a problem for a specific customer. That's it. So you have the customer, you know their problem. Now you have like the optionality to think about how you can solve it and be compensated for that. So I, I, I love that framework because anyone, like you, anyone can, can follow that. Um, you don't have to be like a genius to do that. That's, that's right. And I think one of the easiest things to do is just keep your ears open, right? So like, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I started creating content in 2018, I was writing about what I knew. I wrote about small to medium-sized SaaS companies in the healthcare technology space, right? Totally different, like I said, from what I do today. But I wrote about it every day. I shared my experiences. And I started getting DMs. And I also started getting questions on my content. And as I scrolled through those DMs, as I scrolled through the comments, like, yeah, I had like, oh, cool. can you tell me more about building an SDR team? Or how do you do inbound marketing? Like, I had those questions, right? But I also had a lot of questions about how to use LinkedIn. Hey, man, yeah, I know you write about healthcare, but like, how are you getting so much engagement? Like, how did you learn to write? What time are you posting? What day are you posting? What tool are you using? You know, how many comments? And I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. That was not what I expected when I started to write about, you know, healthcare on, on LinkedIn. And so I was like, that is some signal in a lot of noise. And I talk about healthcare, but I get all these questions about LinkedIn. What do I do with that? So I was like, I don't want to be a LinkedIn coach. I want to keep working with early stage entrepreneurs and healthcare companies. So I was like, what if I just put together a 60 minute video on how I use LinkedIn? So I did. It's the very first thing I created in 2019 called the LinkedIn playbook. It was 50 bucks. I sold 75 grand worth of it in 18 months. And I was like, it blew my mind. That was the first experience I had making, it's not really passive because you have to build it, but making money while I slept, right? Wake up and I was like, whoa, I made a hundred bucks overnight. Just doing that changed the entire outlook of my business. I might still be consulting and advising for early stage healthcare companies in 2023 and 24 if I didn't make that choice. So like, look around, see what's happening, see what people are asking you. There's gold there. Mm. I love that. Like just open, open your ears because it's like, and it goes back to even, I know it's completely different context, but it's like the universe whispers before it yells. Yep. That doesn't even have to just be negative. That can be positive. Totally. That can be that there's a good signal that's there that you're just missing because you're not paying attention. I think it's, I think it's so good because people will have that moment, even listening to this where they're like, oh, like it, it makes sense. And a lot of people say like, I deal with a lot of uh, kind of clients that say, I've been asked the same thing 
50 times by 50 different people and I don't really want to do that thing. Okay, I'm not suggesting that you go do something you're not interested in, right? We talked about that earlier. But like, why not at least run at that for a moment? Figure out how to build a product or service that solves that problem if it's so compelling, if it's so common, if you're hearing it every single day. Because by building that product, by building that service, by building that small business, you're going to learn a ton of lessons. In all of those lessons that you learn doing that, go take those lessons and apply them to something you're much more interested in, right? Like it doesn't have to be fun and exciting from moment one. Go learn when you see a common challenge, then take all those things and apply them to the thing you're most interested in. There's, there's so much knowledge to be gained simply from making a transaction, from solving a problem. Mm. I think that's good as well because I think when it comes to making money online and in social media, I think we see all of these paths that we can go, right? We see the courses, the digital product, advert, sponsorship, like people look at all these revenue channels, but it's like, I like the framework of, you don't have to get it perfect first time. You don't have to start with courses and then be like, oh, okay, I only do courses now. And that's the thing. Like you can try something, take the lessons from that experience and then use it somewhere else. Like, I think, I think it's just a good way. I think it's a good way to think about it. Yeah, I, I feel like there's no right answer. People always say, what should I start with? A service business, consulting, coaching, courses? I don't know. Like, what problems do your customers have and what is the right medium to solve them? If they need you to hold their hand, well, then a course probably doesn't sound right, right? It sounds like you should build a service business. Do it, do it for them, right? If they want to be educated on their own, their own free time, a course might be great. If they want to get a monthly tip on how to do better, maybe a subscription email will work, right? If they want to just get their business in front of more clients, maybe a partnership is, is the right thing to do. There are so many things to do, but it's, it's not what you want to do. It's how the problem gets solved. And everyone's focused on me, 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 when they should be focused on customer problem, customer problem. That's all that matters. And if you can do that well enough for a long enough period of time, then all the things you do in the future can be you focused mm. as long as you get it right for your customer. Mm. You know, I want to key in on something that you said right at the beginning, which is when you started building this one person business, the thought that was at the forefront of your mind was life first, yeah. business second. And here's the thing, right? And I see it. And the reason I speak to it well is because I feel it myself which is like when you're ambitious and you like to go for things and you like to push one level higher each time, it's very easy as you start getting success to be like, but what if I just start taking from this life bucket yeah. and I stop shoveling some of that dirt more into this business bucket? Maybe I could take the 75,000, make it 10 million. And so I'm curious as you're going on this journey, how do you keep that thought in you, the forefront of your mind? Life first, business second. So first of all, great question and something that I deal with all the time, right? Because I'm, I'm not super money driven, right? I, I like to make money. So don't, don't get me wrong. Don't let me lie and tell you I don't. But like, I'm often thinking about how can I continue to do what I do, but get more of my time back, but I get distracted. And I call that shiny outcome syndrome. It's different than shiny object, uh, object syndrome. I look at creator friends of mine and I'm like, oh, that person's doing something really cool. They're making way more money. They're impacting way more people. Like I got to do that thing, right? Give you a good example. 
my buddy Hunter Hammonds, you had him here on the podcast, right? Hunter's doing insanely incredible work that is just impacting so many people. And I look at that, I'm like, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do what Hunter's doing, right? Then I think, okay, what are all the things that Hunter has to do in order to build 12 businesses that are all a million or 2 million more, however many businesses he's built to however many millions, right? What do I got to do to do that? I lay out the work and I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. And I certainly don't want to do that. It's like, it's a no go, right? I get distracted by the outcome. Oh, it's be cool to make all that money and impact all those people and do all. Bring it back. Life first, business second, right? That's why I think grounding yourself in how you want your life to be is the most important thing. You may not get it right the first time, but it has to be your grounding. And so when I look at my business, do I want to grow my business year over year? Yeah, for the most part, right? If it didn't grow, I wouldn't care very much, right? I'm, I love where my business is at. What I really want is to get more of my time back. So I sit down strategically and think, okay, my business is here at X. I'd love for it to be to Y. What are the things I can do that get it from X to Y, but don't impact this foundation? Don't impact my life. Don't force me to do things that I hate doing. Having that grounding will always allow you to make, at least give you the best chance at making the right decision for you and your family. Just to give you a quick side note, I started like a Slack community two years ago. And as a guy who doesn't want to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year doing work, like I skipped that grounding part, right? I overlooked that. I jumped over it and went, went for something that I thought I should do. I regretted it. I loved doing it. People loved it, but it just didn't fit into my lifestyle. And that's one time I can remember really going against my best judgment. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that I've seen is like, when you almost talk about building that mindset into your life, I feel like it needs to be infused into your habits. And the reason I say that is it's so easy to get caught up, right? It's so easy for to spend, you know, a bit longer at the office one day. And then one day doing that turns into a week, which then turns mm -hmm. into a month. And now that's just your life. It goes back to what you were saying when you were working that job, right? Which is like, oh yeah, I just eat a few more extra calories every day. And then that's now what you're doing for months and months and months. I think what breaks that out is when you kind of have these habits and things that you do, which just kind of give you the perspective. Yeah. And so I'm curious about like, talk to me about some of that. Like, what are some of the things that you are doing, yeah. which when you're like, oh, the course isn't performing or you're starting to get a bit too caught up into this thing, it just kind of pulls you out, even for a second. Yeah, I live a pretty regimented life, which um, I, I'm thinking about something that this will, this will tie into what my friend Ben Muir wrote this morning on LinkedIn, which is like living your life in quarters. So like if you think of like your day in 24 hours, like what are the four quarters of your life, right? What are the four quarters of your day? And so habits to me is like, regimented blocks of time. That's, that's how I operate. Now, not to say that I don't get outside those regimented blocks or I don't do something different on a regular basis. I do all the time, but there are certain things that I have to do. For, for example, um, from six in the morning till about 8.30, I am always drinking coffee. I'm always chatting with my wife. And then I always spend 30 to 45 minutes on social media interacting with my audience. I do that almost every morning, right? Miss here and there, but generally that is what I'm doing every morning, right? After that, I have a non-negotiable either five to seven mile walk 
or 90 minutes at the gym. My wife and I do that every single day, non-negotiable. Of course, I might say every single day. We miss sometimes, but for the most part, non-negotiable, right? We, we usually do six to seven days every single week. Then it's like, great, we've got three hours. When we get home, we eat lunch. We've got three hours of work time. So generally, I'm at my best, at my peak from one to four. From four to five, I have open blocks for meetings, for stuff like this. Um, so I set aside that time for creative work, doing a one-on-one -on -one call with somebody who I find interesting, something, right? By having that sort of rigid schedule, I'm building not just a business, but I'm building a life. It might be, uh, a comeback might be, uh, people might say is like, that doesn't sound very lifestyle driven, but it is. I love going to the gym with my wife. I love going on walks with my wife. I love drinking coffee with her in the morning. I love working for three hours a day. It's great. And then the evening after four, if I don't have any meetings, is free for us to do whatever we want. Go out and hang with friends, have a happy hour, check out a new restaurant, drive down to the city and stay at a hotel. We can do whatever we want with that time. But it keeps me focused on the habits that I need to build in order to build both the life and the business that I want. Yeah. I love that framework actually of just like, what are just some things that I just love doing? Yeah. And then let's make sure that that it's infused into the routine. It is present every day. There is something that I objectively love to do. I, I love that way of thinking about it. Okay. You know what? So let's carry on. Let's carry on the trajectory of like the, the one person business and, and scaling it to the point where, where someone could get to the point where they have, they've done 5 million in revenue from doing it. So you start kind of posting online, you're building your audience. You've kind of, maybe you've put out your digital product, you put out a course, you're doing consulting. Let's say that that's got you to, I don't know, like 10K a month or whatever in earnings. I'm curious, like, what do you say to people who are thinking about like the transition? Because I'm assuming a lot of people that do that, they might still have a job or like some sort of main income. And then they're almost using this to like, as a side hustle to like supplement their income. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that transition from being, you know, I'm working a job and I'm doing this thing on the side to just going all in on that thing on the side? When is the right moment? There's never a right moment, but I can give you what I think is some good advice. And people will say, I know someone who did it differently. Great. There's outliers in every single situation. Don't get me wrong. Um, generally, what I would say is if you're working on something part-time, and you've been able to grow that to 50, 60, 70% of your take-home earnings at your job, it's a pretty good indicator that if you suddenly got 40 hours a week back, that you could probably bring that up to 100. It's not guaranteed, but it's a nice indicator. It doesn't mean you do it one month. It means you do it six, seven, eight, nine months in a row. You can see this trajectory where your business is either relatively flat or tilting slightly up or tilting way up, right? It's going down the whole time. That's not a good indicator. But find that 60%, that 70% of your overall total earnings, get there on a regular basis, and then ask yourself, if I had 40 hours a week back to work on this side business, do I believe I could get it to 100%? And by the way, you might not need to. You might actually say, if I can get it to 80% and have a better life, that's a win for me. There's flexibility there. Once you decide that you're, you're ready to make that leap, that's why I talked about this sort of regimented life that I live. The nine to five is very regimented. Go to work, generally arrive at nine, generally leave at five, right? If you jump into something full-time, suddenly you have freedom and flexibility. So that's why I'm regimented. I treat my creator job like a job, right? 
And I think, I think it benefits people to continue to treat that side hustle, especially when they go all in, as a nine to five job, especially in the beginning. Work that 40 hour work week. Make sure you're growing that business to 100% of your take home earnings or more, but get it to a place where you have a regimented approach because the worst thing that happens is you jump into this thing full time and you decide, I'm gonna kick back, rest on my laurels for a minute. That, was, that went great. And suddenly you have no job and your revenue starts going down. Mm. That becomes really, really difficult to handle in my opinion. Yeah, I remember actually uh, in the weeks leading up to when I was leaving my job, that was the biggest piece of advice that I got from people, which is like, um, you take it for granted how your job like structures your life. Yeah. Like it kind of sets the context for everything else. Like even say when you go to the gym, most people go to the gym really early in the morning or after work. Like everything is kind of done in relation to your job. Mm -hmm. So when you, that's taken out, which might, that's a reality that a lot of people dream of is like having that freedom, but then there's still a void there. Like there's, so you need to, you need to add that structure. Um, I think that's so true. You know what? I'm kind of curious on like the, the mindset level of someone leaving their job. And here's where I can see people's mind going, which is like, okay, I did a course, I did a digital product. It went, well, it went way better than I even imagined, but it, it's, it's a one-off, you know? I, it went well once, can I now leave my job? And like, I'm gonna be able to recreate this month on month. And there's like this anxiety of like, I'm removing the stability and the security of my paycheck to do this like creator thing where I listen to the guy on the podcast. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know if this is gonna work again and again and again. I'm curious, do you even have that, that sort of trepidation, that sort of anxiety of like, what if it just goes away? Yes, every single day. Every single day I have that anxiety, mostly because I'm an anxious person, right? So that, that's more of a personality trait of, of my own. But like every day I, I turn to my wife and say like, what if this all goes away tomorrow? And it could, so can your job. Right? Most of us have been fired from a job before. I was fired from my first three jobs, right? So you can go from making a hundred grand a year to making zero overnight in a job. It's unlikely all 23,000 of my students quit tomorrow, right? So I actually think it's less likely if you build your business in an effective way. But of course, I worry about that. But you have to worry about that in any business that you build. There are ways to overcome that. And the ways that I think of overcoming that, by the way, they don't work every single time but there are some ways to de-risk that. One way to de-risk that is to offer up different services. So relying on just a course is scary because course requires traffic, requires conversions, it requires social media content or SEO or paid advertisements. All those things can work. I like to always recommend to people, they offer a service business. What's something that you can do using your skill where you're trading your time for money and you're making a nice hourly rate or project rate, right? That's the easiest way to backfill your salary, to backfill your earnings is with a service business. Once you figure out how to land some customers, and like I said, you're doing it for six to eight to 10 months in a row, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know it's time for you to go all in because with 40 hours a week back, you can make that service business really thrive. Once you do that, you start to carve into your service business who are your ideal customers? Who do you love helping and who loves your help? Who specifically, what specifically do you help them solve and what specifically do you help them achieve? Once you do that and you really niche down in your service business, you can raise your rates. When you raise your rates, you have two options. 
work more and make more money or work less and make the same money because you've raised your rates. What I recommend is work less, make the same money, and take all that newfound time to figure out how to build a digital product for all the people that fall outside of your ideal customer profile. If you can do that, you now have a service business, which requires you to hunt, land customers, and spend your time. And you have a digital product business, which can sell while you're sleeping, right? Your content lasts for a long time, especially the more and more and more followers you get. As you grow your followers, you now have a service and a product business. The next natural thing for you might be, and again, it doesn't have to be, launching a newsletter. If you can launch a newsletter and you've already got 50,000 or 60,000 followers, you might be able to grow that to 10 or 15,000 subscribers. If you can do that, you now have a new revenue stream, sponsorships, right? Maybe it's only a grand an issue, but if you release it a week, it's 52 grand, right? So suddenly you've got a service, a product, you've got sponsors, and you've got a newsletter which can help sell more of your service and your product. So it's completely holistic, this sort of ecosystem that we're building, right? Then as you start to think about your product business, what are some very narrow things that you can create that will help people inside of your product business? So for example, I teach people how to use social media. I also have a very narrow product called the monthly templates, which are five simple social media templates you can use every month to grow your following. I add those onto the course as a one-click upsell. They cost $9 a month. I have 3,000 subscribers. It's a $27,000 a month business where I send one email. So now you've got a service business, a product business, sponsorships, subscription email. I could go on forever in ways that you can monetize under the same umbrella, right? Once you've done that, you are de-risking this problem of suddenly money going away overnight. Mm. Okay, no, that's so good. It reminds me actually, um, Daniel Priestley, he has like a few books. I've seen him on a few podcasts. And one of the things, the way that he kind of frames it is like, you want to build up demand, right? And so the beautiful thing when you can build up demand is that you can start to section off some of that demand into like these different offerings. That's what leads to the, the diversification. And I heard it when I was listening to you, which is like, one of the ways that you build up demand is you get specific. Mm -hmm. You start to really understand like specifically what is the problem that this person is facing. And then it's also, it goes back to that thing that Alex Hamozi said, which is like skills and belief. I think the thing, even if someone can be super specific with what their customer's problem is, the reason that they struggle sometimes mentally is, oh, would someone buy this from me? Would someone pay $10 for the template? Like, I don't know, like, it doesn't seem like someone would pay, but that's because you've already done it. Like yeah. that's a ton of value. And it's like, once that mindset shift starts to happen and you're in the process of building value and getting specific, I like it because there'll be a ton of places in your business where you can, it's a separate revenue stream. It's like the revenue streams will jump out to you mm -hmm. once that mindset shift takes place. And that's actually a beautiful process is being able to almost survey the landscape of your company and be like, oh, there's a revenue stream here. There's a revenue stream here. There's a revenue stream here. It's yeah, beautiful. It's, it's interesting. In, in, in my brain works the reverse way where I, I, I don't often see revenue first. What I see is a problem. Mm. And so like, as people are going through my course, They'll reach out to me. 
hey man, love the course. Like this is still one thing I'm struggling with. Hey, hey man, love the course. This is still one thing I'm struggling with. Back and back and back, right? Over and over and over. It's like, oh, I hear a common problem. Okay, how do I solve it? Well, the templates, great. Plug that in, right? Oh, there's a problem over here, right? Uh, with my sponsorships. For example, I have two sponsors in my newsletter. I had a big company reach out and say, hey, we'd love to do a sponsorship with you, but we want to own the sponsorship slot. We want our logo there. We want to own it. We don't want any competitors in there. And I was like, that sounds like a different price point. That sounds like a new package. That sounds like a new partnership. Put together a partnership. Toss it over to them. Sign my biggest partner. Like, it's not revenue. It's problems. You got to listen for people saying, I have this problem, just like we talked about before. If you can do that, there is money to be made, which is nice. The best thing is you're solving someone's problem and they're getting better at the thing they want to get better at. Mm. That in and of itself will drive additional revenue. With 23,000 students, my courses have, I think, a 4.98 rating. Every single day online, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, somebody is saying something nice about one of my courses and someone else is buying the course because of that. So work on solving problems and that word of mouth marketing will do wonders for your business, whether it's a service business, a product business, or a subscription business. Yeah. You know what? As I was, as I was listening to you, um, it clicked. It clicked. And here's what I mean. Earlier on, you said um, people need to, it's just, you need to open your ears. And you said the reason that people don't open their ears is because it's uncomfortable. This customer like discovery process, this process of getting really clear on what the problem is, it's uncomfortable. Because mm -hmm. I need to get on the phone with people and I need to dive deep and I need to kind of get the answers. And so when I say that it clicked, it's like one of your skills, and, and you know what, you even tell me, you can speak to it better. One of your skills, one of your superpowers is that customer discovery, is becoming really clear on exactly what that person's problem is. And it's so powerful when you talk about your courses, uh, the thousands of people that have done your courses, 4.9 out of 5 rating. It kind of comes back to that, right? Which is understanding exactly what their problem is, because once you have that, you can figure out the solve. But here's what I think is really helpful, something that will be incredibly impactful that you can speak to, which is for the person that feels that they have, they don't have that skill set in customer discovery. How can I get better at that? Yeah. Yeah. How can I get better at figuring out exactly what someone's problem is? It, it comes down to curiosity. There, there are two ways to run a discovery call. I've built sales teams for 10 years, right? I've watched generally discovery calls fall into two buckets. I'm doing discovery because I want to make a sale and I'm positioning every question as a way to get you to buy. And then there's other people who are doing discovery because they actually genuinely care what they're learning about the customer's problem. Like imagine if I was sitting across from you and I was just, we were having a beer, right? And I said, Colin, podcast seems to be going well, man. Like Tell me, how's, how's the month of November gone? Like, how's November versus last December? What's, what's growth look like? I'm, I'm interested. I'm curious. What if you told me growth's actually down? It's down 20% year over year. For some reason, we're just making this up. I'm sure your podcast is growing wonderfully, right? But uh, you might say, you know, it's down. Really? What happened? What, what do you think the cause is? Oh, I think the cause is this. Why do you think that? Well, I think that because of this. That's interesting. Have you heard that more than once? Yeah, I've heard it three times. Who'd you hear it from? I heard from this person, this person, and this person. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about that? That's give me give me a little more clarity around that. Like I would just be interested in learning. I don't have a podcast solution to sell, but at the end of the day, if I did, and we were able to figure out that the loss of subscribers to your podcast was worth 50 grand a year, and I came to you and said, dude, I have worked with four people who have podcasts of exactly your size, talking to entrepreneurs just like you talk to, and instead of losing 20% year over year, they're growing 200% year over year, and to them, that's worth about 85 grand in cash. I can show you how to do that for about two grand. You might, be, you might jump and say, hey, that sounds like a hell of a deal, right? This all, I learned this by being a customer. When I was in the startup, Patient Pop, we were trying to look at an SEO agency. We wanted to help get help with our SEO. Every single SEO agency we talked to said, tell me about your SEO agency. Well, we do SEO for companies just like yours. Well, we do SEO for companies just like yours. Generic, vague, not compelling. I finally got on the call with this guy and he said like, Healthcare SEO has been changing a lot over the last decade, right? What's working for the big, the big boy companies, the Pfizer's, the Moderna's of the world is no longer working for them. And it certainly won't work for little startups like yours. So we've created this specific process, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, okay, this guy knows my business. He knows my industry. He understands the problems. He knows how to solve them. He's worked with other companies like ours. Like this guy's speaking my language. So when I went out to build my business, I didn't want to be generic. I didn't want to be vague. I wanted to be specific. And the best way to be specific is to get curious, ask a lot of questions, deeply and truly understand the problem, and then craft a solution that makes sense. That's what discovery is, curiosity. Mm. No, I, I think that's great. I think that's great. You know what? I think there's a, there's a second component that I have, I have to ask about, which is the curiosity is the driver that's going to get you, it's going to, it's going to fill in like the understanding the customer. It's going to fill in understanding what the problem is. The curiosity is going to drive that. Once you understand what the problem is, there's a second component, mm -hmm. which is being able to speak to that person. And that's something that I think that even in that little role play that you just did, you did it very effectively, which is like, I, not only do I understand your problem, I know how to communicate with you in a way where you know that I understand your problem and I know how to position a solution where it clicks. Mm -hmm. The click is everything because then it's like, oh, I'm kind of unsure about whether I should buy from this person to no, he, he's the one or she's the one. We need to go with them. It creates that urgency when people have that click. Mm -hmm. The click is coming because you, you've, you framed it correctly. And can you, so can you speak about that second component, which is like, okay, I might understand my customer's problem. I have no idea how to, to package everything together to frame the solution where they're like, got you, like I need to buy. Yeah. First of all, it comes from deeply and truly understanding their industry and their problem. You have to understand that before you can deeply understand a solution. Then I think it's, it's doing a lot of different things. There's so much nuance, I think, in, in doing that effectively. But one of the first things I think is you want to speak to them in language, in terms that they understand. Right. So, <clears throat> for example, if, if I'm talking to somebody in healthcare, I might be using words like payee, payor, terms that we use in healthcare to describe different sides of the healthcare spectrum. Right. I might use something like electronic medical records or, you know, what's your what's your patient uh, system of record using jargon and not, not necessarily jargon, but words that they're comfortable with, that they shows them that you understand the space. 
But really, that's all secondary to laying out what I would call a great sort of solution plan, right? So for example, here's how I might lay one out. I might start by saying, hey, Colin, when we talked, you know, we talked about the decrease in followers of your or subscribers of your podcast. Here's what I heard. I want to make sure I heard you correctly, right? I heard there was X drop. You've tried this. It didn't work. You were really frustrated, right? It's costing you about this every single year. I heard that not only is it costing you money, but from a personal perspective, it's actually making your personal life really difficult. It's giving you a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Seems like it's top priority right now. You mentioned that you might be rebuilding the studio. That could potentially take priority number one, but it seems like right now that's priority number one is to fix this. And you'd like to get it fixed by March 31st, right? So <clears throat> let's put together a solution that works for you. And here's how I would do it. The first thing that I would do is I would go back and I would take a look at all the podcasters that I've worked with who have the same audience size, who had a very, very similar problem, and who talked to similar customers that you talked to, right? So you know what? Alex Hormozzi, right? He has a podcast just like yours, similar size. It's growing. He's talking to entrepreneurs just like you, right? When I talked to him, he was feeling this way, this way, and this way. Does that resonate with you? I thought it might based on what you, you told me about how you were feeling. He also saw this decrease in, in customers, but where he saw it was a little bit different than yours. He saw it here, A, B, and C. So I solved that problem, but your D, E, and F, here's how I would hypothesize solving that problem, right? I would start with step one, which would be X. Step two, which would be Y. Step three, which would be Z. At the conclusion of step three, we're gonna have an understanding of whether or not we're moving in the right direction. If we aren't moving in the right direction, I've got a contingency plan. It's gonna look like this, A, B, and C. If we are moving in the right direction, we're gonna to continue to iterate, we're gonna to continue to get better, we're gonna to continue to use data. Column, I think we can solve this problem in about 65 days, recoup about 85 grand worth of money and potential lost revenue, and do it for about five grand. So about one 17th of what you'll actually recoup in revenue. Here's my ask, right? If I can execute on that, and do that effectively, would you be willing, at the conclusion of our working together, to sign up for a 12-month commitment to me where I show you how to grow this podcast on three different platforms if I deliver on my word? Most people will say, if you deliver on your word, if you've worked with people like me, if you've solved similar challenges, if you can lay out a hypothesis-based solution uh, for me and then make that ask, most people will say, yeah. Fix this problem first, and then let's go tackle getting, getting more people. They're amped up thinking about what's called positive future. Not only have I painted a picture where this current problem is solved, but I've painted a picture where this current problem is solved, and you and I are working on growing your podcast through three new channels, right? So you're thinking, man, that would be cool if I could grow it on TikTok and Instagram and all this. So I've got you thinking about that positive future, one-seventeenth of the cost of the revenue that you recoup. Make it a no-brainer. Make it a win-win. That's how I might do that. That comes from 10 to 15 years of sales experience, though. Yeah. Damn, that was just a masterclass right there. That was a masterclass. You got me ready I, to I buy a service I don't really even I'm need. blacked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I loved it because it was like, it's like step one, it's like, okay, so you understand the problem. Yeah. Recap to them the problem. Tell them in your own words. And then that solidifies in their brain like, oh, like he gets it. He, he gets me. Two, step two is then like, what's your methodology? Like, what's your unique approach? How are you going to, what's the solve? 
And what's the, it's not even so much what's the solve, it's like, what's the process? Build confidence by, by explaining your methodology. And then three is like the close, which is like, you know, it's the positive future. It's like, okay, here's exactly what we're gonna do. Here's the ask. And I, it's, it's and, and in between, it's, sorry for interrupting, but in between the, the sort of what we're gonna do in the close is the risk contingency plan. Where it's like, hey, if this doesn't work, I'm already thinking. I'm already thinking ahead. Like, I think this is going to work, but if it doesn't, here's the secondary plan that we're going to work, right? It's risk, risk contingency. So if everything goes wrong, what are we going to do about it, right? Is it going to cost you extra money? It's not. I've already got a plan for it, right? So it's so much better than regular discovery. I'm sure you've been on sales calls in your life, and I've been on plenty of them. I can re recall early in my journey um, talking to a digital co course company that hosted digital courses where I was like, you know, the problem that I have is it's difficult for students to access the videos and like quickly cut me off. And it's like, we have X, Y, Z. And inside of our platform, we can do X and A and B and C and D. And then we can market you here. And I'm just like, whoa, that's not my problem. You weren't listening, right? Hear me out. Don't tell me about your features that I don't give a shit about. Like, I don't care about all 30 features you just told me about. I have one problem. Listen to me and then tell me exactly how your solution can solve it. Not all the cool features that you think I'm going to find interesting. Because I want problem solved, not interesting features. That is so good. You know, you know one thing that, that jumps out, and I have, I have to ask about it, which is when I listen to you speak, I feel like you're kind of like a natural educator. Like the, the, the courses, it makes sense to me. Because the way that you can break down something and add energy to it, but then also make it very much step by step. It, it feels like someone who's a teacher. And, you know, I think one of the things that's like, I think we're getting to a place with like the, the online courses where it's starting to become like a bit too much for people. Where I go on Instagram or I go on Twitter, I go on TikTok, I go on YouTube. Everyone has a course. They, I, I watch one video. It's like, oh yeah, you want to sign up for my course on how to, like everyone has it. And it's like, it's almost getting to like this kind of icky level where it's like, oh great, like another person with a course. I think, I think there's something special in like the reviews that you've got, in like the feedback that you've got. And so I'm curious from your vantage point, if I'm thinking about starting a course, but I'm like, I don't just wanna be another course. Like I don't wanna be the, the next person that's just, you know, trying to sell their audience on a course. I actually want it to have true, genuine impact. What are you doing in that process of creation of that course where it's truly a special experience for someone? They're, they're coming back, they're referring people, they're leaving incredible reviews. What is it that's separating you from all these courses that I'm seeing where people, you know, they sign up one day and then the next day they're like, oh, whatever. Well, the course business has limited friction to get involved. So anyone with a camera can get involved. But so people with no experience can get involved. But it's not too dissimilar from books, right? Like we don't hear people complaining that there are too many books. But I know a lot of authors write books and I know the authors personally and they haven't done the things they write about. Like books are just as polluted as courses. I think if we get mad about the medium, we're mad about the wrong thing. We should be mad as a, I don't even know if mad is the right word, 
we should be irritated that people who don't have experience going and creating things that you suggest they do. It's not my job to protect people from the market though, right? Mm. It's not my job to babysit people and to point out people who don't have the experience, right? That's, that's babysitting stuff. Let people find out through, you know, making decisions on their own. I digress, right? Here's, here's what works for me when it comes to courses. I have this thing called <clears throat> what I call the trust tripwire. And tripwire usually has a negative connotation. It's something that's priced so low that you kind of trip over it. And it's like, you get someone to spend $4 with you. So they're spending more money with you in the future. I don't really want to do that. What I want to do is take a problem that I know with 100% confidence that I know how to solve. I want to build the absolute best solution in the market for that problem. And I want to give it to people at a price they cannot believe, right? So the number one piece of feedback I get on my LinkedIn course is like, this should be $1,500. It's 150 bucks, right? It's got 17,000 students in that course. I know that I could charge more for it, but why? That's short-term thinking, in my opinion. Other people will argue with me on this all day long. I don't mind. I would rather someone paid $150 and got 15 grand worth of value or 150 grand worth of value because the next time, two years or three years down the road, when I come out with something else and it's $500, they're going to go, 150 I got 150 grand worth of value, 500 I'm going to get 500 grand worth of value, right? I am setting a long game journey up. I am showing people that when you spend a dollar with me, you get $100 in return. That's what I want to show people. And because I surprise people with the quality of content at the price point, it makes it a no-brainer for them to leave a testimonial. Plus, I have frictionless ways in which I capture that. And every time I capture a testimonial, it goes to my landing page. So I've got thousands of testimonials on my landing page. More testimonials, higher conversion rates, more students, more word-of-mouth marketing, more testimonials, higher conversion rates. It's just cyclical, right? It all goes around. It's because I want to play the long game. Everyone wants to make money fast. So they come out, no experience, $2,500 course. The trust you need to sell a $2,500 course is so much, right? They underestimate that trust. So I'm playing this long game while, while I think a lot of other people are playing a very, very short game. Lastly, I'll say, you need to teach yourself how to teach. Teach a fourth grader. Sit down with, I have two very good friends that live, live up near me in the Hudson Valley. They're both 80, 81 now. Um, they don't understand LinkedIn, but one of my friends, Marshall, wanted to get involved. So I sat down with him and I explained LinkedIn to an 81-year-old. He's very bright, right? But technology is not his forte. And so I had to really make sure I was crisp, specific. Where are the buttons? What do you click? How do you do it? Why do you do it? And by doing that over and over again with 81-year-olds, eight-year-olds, your friends, their kids, right? Like get good at explaining things simply. Feynman technique, right? Explain things like you might explain it to a kindergartner. You can get really good at that. People love to learn crisply and succinctly. Yeah. You know, I think the, and, and this is something I've had to learn firsthand. The experience piece is, is grossly underrated. And, and then here's what <clears> I mean when I say that, which is sometimes we think that, I don't know, maybe because we've experienced something or because we have the knowledge, we just think that we'll be a good teacher. But you don't have any experience teaching though you might know everything and we've all had this experience growing up right which is like 
the, the physics teacher who knows everything about physics, but is a terrible teacher. They cannot convey that knowledge. And so I think it is such an important point you make, which is like, the best way to do it is by, you have to do the thing, you know? And even if you just start with one person, it doesn't even have to be someone you're selling to, but just getting those reps. And you know what, it actually reminds <clears throat> me, you, you mentioned our conversation with Hunter. Um, I think Hunter's kind of known online at the minute for like being able to build these agencies and scale them to a seven figure point in like record time. When I was speaking him with him, the piece that people miss is he is doing a ton of testing before they oh, yeah. ever launch. Oh yeah. And like, that's kind of how you're thinking about it with the courses is like when you're teaching your 80 year old friend or your mom or your dad or whoever it is, that's your testing period of, you know, like getting sharp, actually being an educator. I have a wife who's a great student. Um, so when I create something, she doesn't like social media or, or marketing or sales the way that I do. In fact, she doesn't really like it much in general. <clears throat> and so when I build something, I'll put it in front of her. In pass one, she's always like, I don't understand. I was like, no, no, it's so easy. It's so easy. Just do this, do this, do this. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, okay, that's, you don't need to get frustrated. It's like, okay, that's good feedback. Where's the breakdown? Like there's steps one through 10. Is it step three, step one, step eight? Once we find the breakdown, it's like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. All you have to do is continue to put it in front of people who are not your, not your students, right? Someone who has no concept of the industry you teach. If you can put it in front of someone and they say, yeah, I went through a 30 minute video and like, I've never been on LinkedIn before, but it all made sense to me. That's a huge win, right? If you give that product to a bunch of people who spend a lot of time on the platform, it's 100% gonna make sense to them. Mm. Okay, you know what, tell me this, right? So I've, I've understood the problem. <laughs> I've become a great educator. Let's take those two as a given. Getting people to sign up for the course, because here would be my, my hesitation, right? If I was gonna do a course right now, is, okay, I'm gonna spend this time developing this course and I'm gonna put hours and hours in. And then I feel that there's a market for it, you know, that has the problem. Um, but when I launch, will the demand be there? And people, and, I, and I've kind of learned this in business. It's very <clears throat> different when someone has to pay for something. Yeah. That's, a, that's different. And so the people that I might've been telling you, oh yeah, I really need this. And this, you know, this sounds great. When it comes time and it's, okay, $4.99 for my course, the Callum Johnson experience. I don't know what it's called. Um, People start getting a bit more, oh, okay, well, maybe in a few months or, you know, maybe next year or like, what is the right way to think about marketing my course yeah. where there's going to be demand? Like people are saying yes. Yeah. First of all, don't build it until they buy it. <laughs> like I reversed that on my newest course because I've been doing this for a long time and I have a lot of data that suggests that people will buy it, right? 16,000 people on the wait list. I, I, I feel confident that they will buy it, right? But on my first two courses, three courses, I sold it first before I built it. Mm. There's no, no point in building something if people aren't gonna pay you for it. So <clears throat> what I, the first step that I try and do is I listen, right? If 30 people come to you and say, the number one request I get is a copywriting course, which I don't wanna build. I'm not interested in building it. But since I get so many requests for it, I'm pretty sure that if I built it, people would buy it, right? So if I were gonna do that, 
I would go out and start talking about copywriting on a regular basis, which I'm not interested in talking about. But if this example, I would go out and start talking about why it's so important, what your future looks like when you learn to copyright, the biggest mistakes people make when copywriting, why copywriting is a skill that you have to have in 2024. I would just talk about it ad nauseum every single day, right? And at the end of those things, I would say, I'm considering launching a course. Everyone, I've, I've got 30 plus people that have come to me and said they want to get a course for copywriting. If you want to get it, you can get it right now for $99 pre-sale. It's going to come out in two months. Or if you wait till it comes out, it's going to be 400 bucks, right? Buy, 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 buy. Great. Look at your thing. Cool. I've made 50 grand. Is it worth building? Yes or no? If you think 50 grand is worth building it, go build it. If you don't, tail between your legs, say, hey, guys, you know what? The demand just wasn't there. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm issuing you a refund. Don't build something unless people want to pay for it, right? That to me is like the most important thing. Marketing is, I mean, there's so much nuance, but to me, marketing is a combination of uh, really understanding people's biggest pains, how they articulate those pains, and then understanding what a positive future looks like. Describe, ask them to describe it. Hey, if I fix this problem to you, like, what does life look like for you? What does business look like for you? They're going to tell you things. Use those words in your content, your copy, your emails. All the stuff that I write on social media are words other people have said to me. That is the best form of marketing, in my opinion. Mm, that, is, that is good. And I guess the, the process of thinking about it is like, it goes back to what you were saying originally, which is businesses just solve a customer's problem. There's a point A and there's a point B. And if you can position yourself as the conduit between that point A and that point B, you're going to sell a lot of product and it's going to be powerful. And it's not only that you're going to sell, it's going to be incredibly impactful. People are going to have a level of gratitude, a level of happiness and satisfaction in dealing with you. Um, it's powerful. It's, it's powerful and it's, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Most questions I get are, what landing page builder should I use? What course builder should I use? What tool should I use? What time should I do it? What day? How, how many followers exactly should I have them when I should launch it? All meaningless questions for the most part, right? When you get really good, like you can, there's some questions. Yes, those things might matter, right? Um, find a problem. Understand it deeply. Learn how to solve it. Show people that you know how to solve it. Build a product or service that solves it. Paint a positive future. And you'll make sales. That at its most fundamental, is the most fundamental way to think about business, right? All that other stuff is ancillary. All that other stuff is on the side. Stuff you can get really complicated and advanced with later. Most people are worried about the advanced stuff before they have the fundamentals done. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> you know what i'm i am um maybe my audience is getting is sick of it at this point i am such a big proponent and i always go back to the 80 20 principle 20 percent of the input drives 80 percent of the output the learning there is that only really like there's 20 percent of what you're doing that truly matters that's where the true impact is here's the reason that i bring that up and this might just be in my, in my world, in my Twitter sphere or LinkedIn sphere, whatever. You are very much like 
the solopreneur. I think even in your bio, mm. it says the diversified solopreneur. You're on track this year to do $2.5 million in revenue, mm -hmm. right? What do you have to say to the person that's like, okay, he's kind of built a, a brand and everything around being a solopreneur about doing this one person business and you're incredibly successful at it. But can anyone, can they, can they follow those steps and necessarily reach that point? Or is it something like, is this solopreneur, is it almost this new reality where we're going to be seeing a ton of one person businesses popping up that are doing seven figures? Or is it like, we're going to see a few Justin Welshes, but for most people, it's not really a viable solution. What do you say to that? Uh, <clears throat> it depends on what viable means, right? So do I think that I'm an outlier? Yeah, for sure. Right? I, 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 I never um, market my products as like, be the next me, right? Because I don't know that that'll happen. In fact, I, I highly doubt that it'll happen. Um, <clears throat> but think about anything that you buy, right? So uh, I don't have kids, but I can remember going to basketball camp when I was younger. My guess is that basketball camp today, two-week basketball camp, probably cost 500 bucks, maybe more, maybe a couple thousand dollars. I have no idea what it cost, right? Probably a sizable investment. Maybe 200 kids will go. Of those 200, I don't know, maybe 20 will make their varsity team, maybe one will play college ball, and zero will go to the NBA. Like, did the, did the camp not deliver on its promise, right? If they promise you NBA superstars, then it didn't deliver. Most camps just like, We'll teach you how to play basketball. And some of you will be fundamentally better at it than others, right? Some of you will be taller and more athletic. Like that's just how it works, right? So my goal is to go out and show people the way, right? Some of those people will try and fail. Other of those people will never try. They'll buy the course. They won't even watch it, right? And a smaller subsection of people will build six-figure business. And an even smaller subsection will build a seven-figure business, right? I have three students that I can think of out of 23,000 that have built uh, one to $2 million businesses. It's a pretty small percentage, right? But I have at least 100 emails from people that have said, I make 80 grand or 90 grand or 100 grand. It's not my decision to determine whether or not that's, that's viable for them, right? As a solopreneur, kind of speaking to that side, I don't know that it's right for everybody. I'm not in the camp of speaking in definitives, right? So I don't say solopreneurship is the way to go. I lay it out on the table as an option. Here's why I do it. Here's what I like about it. Here are the pros. Here are the cons. Here's why it might be right for you, but maybe they should build a company. Maybe they should be a nine to five employee. Maybe they should be a freelancer. I, I don't know, right? All I can do is say, this is what I like to do. And this is how my business works. And these are the skills that I've developed. And this is how I've developed them. And this is the game plan that I've put together and allow people to self-select in to say, I want to learn more about that, right? I think about every nonfiction book I've read in my life. I don't know that I can think of a single book that I've read that has had a six-figure impact on my life. I know that's probably pretty pessimistic. Maybe there are some, but most books I read, I'm like, that's cool. That's interesting. A week later, like, my life's the same. Mm. So it's all about how you implement things. And that's why, to me, um, having a peer accountability community, 
having groups where we can get together, having live AMAs, those things are all benefits to a really robust course. Mm. You know what? Let's take the let's take the sports camp analogy one step further. Mm-hmm. I, I said it before, I absolutely love sports. And uh, one of the things, and I've loved to do this from an early age, is listen to these top athletes speak, whether it be interviews, um, whether it be after the games, whether it be podcasts, whatever it is. If you take, even if, I remember actually listening to, to Deion Sanders say this, one of the greatest NFL corners that's ever played the game, right? And he will go to a camp or he will go in a university and speak. And he'll say something similar to what you just said, which is, listen, guys, the majority of you, not even the majority, 99.999% of you are never making the NFL. Mm -hmm. Probably no one in this room is going to be a Hall of Famer and have the sort of storied career that I had. However, there is always the chance that there is that one person in the room. And even when you gave the statistical like example of your courses, it's, there's, there's one or two people that have made the millions that mm-hmm. like the, the trajectory, um, while not completely replicating what you've done, but it's like, it's similar. It's at least in that ballpark. If it was Deion Sanders at the, the football programs, maybe one player is like a pro bowler in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And so for one second, what I, what I would like you to do is speak to the individual that has that ambition. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're even doing, let's say a hundred, they've done a hundred K and they're like, I want to get into that, that million camp, that seven figure camp. And if you had to, we go back to the 80, 20 principle, the 20% that truly matters. You're speaking to that person and you have to say, okay, you really want to make it into that camp? It's incredibly exclusive. Most people never get anywhere close to it. But if you really want to make it, this is what you do. Yeah. This is what you focus on. Different for, for everyone, but I would say there's some commonalities amongst the people who have done it. Number one is they've built a movement, <clears throat> right? So um, if you look at my content, it's not just like, here's 13 steps on how to build a course, right? Or or it's like, um, here are three things I learned when, you know, uh, running my service business. What I'm building is a movement. It is a different way to think about work as a whole. And it all goes back to that initial thing we talked about, building your life first and your business second. As common as that sounds, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. At least not in my, I do now. I started talking about it in October of 2021. Why solopreneurship is life first, business second. I'm building a movement, a one-person creator movement. And by getting people bought in and excited and feeling like the movement is right for them, they become more likely to purchase products and services that will help them reach the destination. That's any movement, right? That's any political movement. That's any social movement, cultural movement. If you can get people bought in, and by the way, I think a lot of people here get people bought in and think of that with a negative connotation. It's not negative. I believe in solopreneurship. That's how I'm building my life. That's how I'm building my business to support my life. I think more people should explore it if it's right for them. They have to make that choice. But if they opt into the movement, I hope to have customers for life. 
because I hope to move them along in this movement and get them to the journey that they're trying to, the end of the journey that they're trying to go to. It's very hard to do. So creating that movement, right? I think the second thing is understanding people's future expectations and their desires, right? So their emotional desires, what makes them tick? What gets them excited? Where do they see themselves in the future? And being able to use that language on a regular basis to reinforce that destination. I think great marketers use future-laden, really emotional language. I think that's, that's number two. Those are like marketing, right? So like kind of push those aside. <clears throat> one really common one is doing what you've done to get to 100 grand longer, <laughs> right? Like people are like, how do I get to a million? You do the thing that got you to $100,000 longer, <laughs> right? Especially on social media. I, my revenue has grown as my followers have grown. My impressions have grown. My subscribers have grown. It's just, it's a marathon, right? Everyone wants to sprint this marathon. It's not how it works. When you run a marathon, if you've ever watched the New York City Marathon, everyone's crowded in a huge pile in the beginning. Go to the finish line at the end. There's like three dudes straggling across the finish line. Everyone else is like left behind, right? The longer the race, the fewer the people are left at the end. So if you can continue to run the race every single day, $100,000 will become 200, will become 400, will become 600, will eventually, not, not necessarily eventually, but could eventually become a million. Are there other things that go into that? Of course. Eliminating things that don't work. Automating things that help your business scale. Outsourcing things that you, know, you don't have the time to do. Focusing really deep on creative work. Finding out how to spend a dollar to make $3. That's understanding your customer lifetime value, how much it costs to acquire your customer. There are a million different things, little nuances that go into scaling, but having that movement, painting that future language and outlasting your competition are three that you got to get right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, that is special. And, it, and it's so true what you say, which is like, there are certain companies that transcend, they transcend even being a business. Um, we buy, I don't know, like we buy thousands of products but how many products do we buy where we feel like we're part of a movement? Very few. And usually those companies kind of jump to mind, right? Like you might think about an Apple. Like people almost take their iPhone or their Mac. Like it's a part of their identity. It's part of who they are. It's a movement. It means something for me to have this Mac more than the fact that I can go on the internet or the processing speed or features, right? It's different. Um, and, and I'll just say this, just to not to jump in, but if you think about Mac, it's because they have great products, right? Their, their product is excellent. At least I think so. <clears throat> Let's take something different. I'm wearing Nikes, right? Mm. Um, I like the way they look. At least in my opinion, my subjective opinion, they're not the most comfortable shoes. Uh, but I bought them anyways, right? Because Nike represents something more than comfort. It represents athleticism. It's cool. It's hip. Like there are a million different reasons why we jump on the Nike bandwagon. They're made, I think, in Indonesia or China. They probably cost five bucks to make and they're selling them for $180 or whatever. I mean, there are a lot of other shoes that I could buy. But why do so many people buy Nike? Because they've created a movement over the years. Phil Knight is a marketing genius. And that movement that he built 
is why Nike is a multi-billion dollar business. It's not because they're comfortable. It's not because they help your basketball performance. It's none of that, right? It's movement. Hmm. And that's why I think building movements is, it's hard. It's worth it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting actually, like, uh, I've read, I've read his book, Shoe Dog, a couple of times. And it's interesting for me because I'm, I'm 25, so I don't really have this context. But one of the things he says is like, shoes, trainers, sneakers, it was a commodity. Like now everyone, you know, like they put out a new Jordan or they bring back one of like the retro Jordans and there's people like queuing up around the block to get it and it's selling out and then reselling for thousands and thousands of dollars. So we don't think about it as a commodity. It feels fundamentally different than everything else. But before Nike, like these were really seen as commodity. It's just a shoe. It's not special. It's, there's nothing special about it. It's just a shoe. There's a million different commodity items that sell a lot because they've built a movement. So as you think about your industry or your skill, one of the things you got to think about when building a movement is who your enemy is. This is very, a very political thing you'll see, right? <clears throat> if you look at politics in the US, and I, I'm not a big political fan, if you look at the two parties, most of what they say, not all of it, but most of what they say is not, here's what our party can do for you. Most of what they say is, here's why the other party is terrible, right? It's an enemy thing. It's not look at me, it's look at them. They're bad. Vote for us, right? All movements have an enemy and they don't have, that enemy doesn't have to be a person. It can be an ethos. It can be a thought process. My enemy in my movement is living a life of regret, right? So I constantly shine the light on that enemy and I give my followers on social media a common enemy that we can all band together and to steal from Russell Brunson for a rock set, right? We're going to defeat the enemy together. And that is part of the movement. That is a huge piece of movement building that I think a lot of people miss. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Okay. Here's, here's where I want to end. Um, there's a conversation sometimes that like, I, I almost have to hold myself honest. And the thing that I'm holding myself honest on is like, I think that, in life, we kind of, we have to experience a certain level of like pain, right? And, and suffering so that we have the realizations. There's this thing, um, I remember LeBron said it, experience is the greatest teacher. Sometimes me putting my hand to that fire and like feeling that pain, it's what creates that trigger in my brain. Like, I'm not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. That said, how much unnecessary suffering, pain do we put ourselves through <laughs> And as I'm thinking about that in my mind, it reminds me of something that you said at the beginning of that conversation, of our conversation, which is in 2018 was when you had your first panic attack, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it could have been avoided. It could have been avoided if you had had like, just maybe a moment of stillness, maybe just a moment of peace, of being removed from that situation that point where everything felt urgent and it had to be done right at that second, maybe if you just had a bit of perspective, it could have been avoided and that day and that suffering could have been avoided. And so where my mind goes is you're kind of, you're on a completely different trajectory now, right? 
You've got the, the one person <clears throat> business. You've got the business that not only is it making money, but you've stayed true. You stay true to the ethos of life first and then business. And so this is the question that I, I had for you. If the Justin Welsh that's sitting in front of me now could go to the Justin in 2018, pre-panic attack, pre that day, pre the unnecessary suffering, what would that conversation be? Hmm. Um, well, I I'm going to read between the lines here and guess at what you might be asking. And I'll also answer your question. It sounds like what you might be asking is, if that could have been avoided, would I have chosen to avoid it? That might not be the question you're asking, but that's the way I took it. And so I'll just say this. If I go back to my, myself, I would say, hey, you're about to experience something very life-changing. Lean into it. I wouldn't wish it away. <clears throat> I agree that experience is the best teacher. I like the fact that you, you quoted it from LeBron. That's very funny. Um, I like that. He's a, I'm a Cleveland guy, so good, good, good on him. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it away. I wouldn't have wished a different... There's no point in wishing away pain that leads to growth and success. Could you imagine going back and wishing away your most difficult workouts? Could you imagine going back in time and <clears throat> wishing away the heartbreak from uh, a former girlfriend if you ended up marrying somebody else? Like, my heart was broken when I was 29 years old. I ended up marrying a better woman. Like, if I went away and wished, if I went back and wished all the pain and suffering away from my life, then all the good things that I have wouldn't be there. So <clears throat> I'm glad my life turned out the way it did. I think everybody that I know that is successful, maybe not everybody, but I think a big majority of them have experienced rock bottom, have experienced addiction, have experienced the loss of a loved one, have experienced the loss of a limb. Like I have friends who have experienced some of the toughest stuff and those, those guys and gals are the most successful. So <clears throat> I don't know that it's necessary, uh, but it's certainly helpful. Mm. I love that as a place to end. Justin Welsh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So before we get out of here, I had to leave you guys with one last gem. That's the sponsor of today's show, Free Agency. Free Agency represents and manages talent in the tech industry. They do this by providing you with a dedicated talent agent that will help you find and win top of market roles. That talent agent is your career quarterback. They understand you and your career goals. They help you get interviews at the firms that you want, and they help you land the salary that works for you. So go to the link in the description, check out free agency. Thank me later. Peace.